Amen. Please remain standing and hear the word of our God. I'm going to be leaving John today as we celebrate the ascension of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to be reading the entire chapter of Mark, chapter 13. These are the words of God. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you, not, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. For, but whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved." So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days and pray that your flight may not be in winter. For in those days there will be tribulation such as not been seen since has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days no flesh would be saved but for the elect's sake whom he chose he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you look here is the Christ or look he is there do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive if possible even the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth, uh, from 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 the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near. It is at the door. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray. For you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to keep watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. 
These are the words of Jesus. Let's ask his blessing. Heavenly Father, grant us your Holy Spirit that we might comprehend these words of Jesus in light of his resurrection and ascension to his throne. Keep us aligned with your intention and grant us insight into your sovereign power and judgment and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so it is Ascension Sunday, and I hope as we go through this passage and we'll talk about it, you'll see uh, the importance of considering uh, the subject in this, ch in this chapter in light of the ascension of Jesus Christ. You know, across the, across the country, nation, um, and nations of the world, in Christian churches, um, there, there's a regular celebration of Christmas and of Easter. There is very little recognition in the church today of Ascension Sunday and Pentecost. The, the, the culmination, really, of the incarnation and the resurrection is what was it all for? <laughs> Jesus rises from the dead, but then it's not over. He ascends up into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And then he sends his spirit out uh, upon all flesh, it says. And, and the spirit comes upon, upon uh, on Pentecost Sunday. On that, on that Sunday, it comes uh, to uh, uh, a whole bunch of, of, of people who are then hear the, the gospel in all the languages of the nations that are represented. What's going on? What is going on with regard to the ascension, the coronation, the rule of Jesus Christ on earth today, and what took place in that first generation. Very important things to consider because it sets, it sets for us a sense of where we fit also in the work of the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Forty days after the resurrection, the disciples watched with their own eyes their Lord ascend into the heavens. That was Acts 1. We read, that, or we read some of that earlier. That ascension would elevate the risen Jesus to a place where his name would be exalted and vindicated. He was not just simply escaping, nor was it a, a going away and some kind of, of, of some kind of defeat. He left in victory, and, that, and his ascension was his exaltation. It was his vindication as well. Philippians 2.9 says, Therefore God has also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Actually, in Revelation 19.16, we are told what that name is. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Matthew 28.18, just prior to his ascension, Jesus told his disciples, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. I'm not departing here because I don't have authority. I'm, I'm departing here because I'm going, to be, I'm going to be crowned and seated where I will reign with all authority over heaven and earth. Revelation 11.15, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. From last Thursday, if that had been the Thursday of Ascension Day, from that day forward, Jesus Christ, the God-man, was seated at the throne of God and reigns over heaven and earth forever and ever. His ascension would bring forth the outpouring then of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, a, a, a new baptism of a, of a new creation, of a new humanity over the world. And the beginning of the end of the old covenant order took place at that time, culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. There's a reason why the temple was destroyed at the end of one generation from the time of Christ's ascension. It was the end, this was a period of time where the old covenant order was coming to an end. There was still, there was still sacrifices going on after Jesus ascended, but there, was, there were warnings, we see them throughout scripture, that that's all coming to an end. 
and that there's a new order, a new way of, of, new way of being holy, a new way of coming to the Father in the, name, in the name of his Son now, and that was being established during that time. What we read about here in Mark 13, or in parallel passages of Matthew 24 and Luke 21, are in a sense the first executive orders of the King of Kings enthroned on high. You think of it that way. A king has been established, and as he, and as he sits on his throne, we, we think about this every time there's a presidential election, and we hear about the first executive orders. What is your first order of business that you're going to do? Or, or we oftentimes hear from, from a new president or a new governor, um, what are your intentions in the first 100 days of your office? What are you going to accomplish in the first 100 days? Well, what you're reading in, in Mark chapter 13 is, is Jesus' plans, what he says is going to take place in the first generation in the first generation of his rule and reign. These are his executive orders. These are his plans, his intentions. And it appears he was extremely successful in his first generation of, uh, of rule and reign at his father's right hand. To use another metaphor, the ascension marks the day when there was now a new sheriff in town. Everything was changed. Everything would be different. In, um, Jesus had been teaching and causing a ruckus in the temple. In, in Mark, it's laid out there in, in chapters 11 and 12, leading up to 13. And as he, as he departs and comes out of the temple, the disciples seem to want to notice how grand the temple was. It, they'd say, Jesus, you, you need to look at this. And, and historians like Josephus and Eusebius and, and others will tell you about how beautiful, how gigantic, how awe-inspiring the temple was. Plated with gold, if you were standing um, east of the temple, like at the Mount of Olives, and you, were, and you turned and you looked towards the, te- towards the temple uh, with the sun rising on your back, you would have a hard time looking at the temple. It shone with the brilliance of the sun. The stones, the thickness, the width, the length of the stones, and the fitting together of the stones and the multiple towers around the temple were, 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 were done with such extravagance, with such craftsmanship, that, that the towers actually looked like they're one piece of stone as they went up. This, this was an enormous, glorious, and something that made the Jews very proud of, of what they had. And it, and it spoke of the of the presence of God, the power of God, the, the power of God among his people. This is, of, of course, the place that they had hoped the Shekinah glory would come. Of course, at Pentecost, the Shekinah glory doesn't fall in Jerusalem. It falls in some room somewhere. We don't even know which room it was where, where, where the disciples were, were hiding from, from the authorities. But this is the place they thought the glory of God resided. And so, and so after, after Jesus kind of making a mess of the house, leaves and, and then the disciples, as, as, they're, as they're looking back at, at the temple, they say to Jesus, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. As though maybe he had forgotten or hadn't noticed that part of it as well. And Jesus immediately makes a prophecy that the temple would be leveled. Leveled, not a stone would be left upon another. And later, then some of the disciples asked him, in verse 4, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? This is, this, is, this is interesting news. When is this going to take place and what will be the sign that this is going to be taking place? And then now the following discourse of chapter 13 is an answer to those specific questions. And in that answer, Jesus said that these things would be fulfilled within 
one generation. If you turn and look again at verse 30, assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. And that verse then tells us that the one generation was the generation Jesus was speaking to. Because he did not say that generation in the future. He said this generation. All of these things will be fulfilled in this generation. So either these things were signs that would lead to the fulfillment of of that temple's destruction, or they were not. And history shows us that they were. So this generation. um, I think think the phrase this generation is used 16 times in the New Testament. Now, now several of those times are throughout these parallel passages when when each one of the gospel writers, um, Matthew, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, refer to this saying that Jesus said. But every other time that Jesus speaks of this generation, he's, he's very obviously referring to the generation that he is speaking to. And so there, there's no reason to take that phrase, this generation, to mean anything other than it meant every other time. The generation that he is speaking to is the generation where these signs would come forth that would show that, that the temple was about to be destroyed, that the end of something was about to take place, the end of a world, the end of an age, the end of an order, the end of a particular administration of the covenant of grace. So we see here the things that are, that are supposed to take place in the beginning of this generation, verses 5 through 13. You can summarize it as, as this, various attacks would come upon these disciples and the early ministry of the new church and that's probably the only part that, as we've gone through the book of John, that you've noticed that Jesus was speaking to them, to his disciples, and, they, and he said specifically to them that you're going to be persecuted as well. But, but other than that, most of the, the, the uh, um, passage of Mark 13 and the other synoptics are not found directly in John's gospel. And someone might ask, why, as John is, is putting these things together, does he not have that? And I would argue that he actually has a far more extended um, revelation of what's going to take place in a book that goes by that name, the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. But that's set aside, and and John will deal with that later in in another writing. Here, we see that uh, this early ministry of the church is going to experience a lot of persecution. Josephus records that, um, that there were many false messiahs between AD 30 and 70, um, that's according to what, what he says here, uh, many will come, verse, verse 6, many will come in my name saying, I am he, that, not that he was Jesus, but I am he, I'm the Messiah, I'm the, I am the promised one. And, and there are many, many accounts of these rebellions that uh, raised up, that get, people were gathered together and, uh, and, and to, to stand against the, the, um, the Romans particularly, and, and they were shut down, killed. There were many times that there were, there were slaughters, battles that took place. These were antichrists. These were those who, who denied that Jesus was the Christ and who instead tried to raise up insurrections to put down the Romans. Well, John writes about that in 1 John. He says, little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. There are many antichrists that had already come in that generation um, declaring themselves to the to be the Messiah, the great deliverer of the people of Israel. There was international turmoil with nations rising against nation, various earthquakes and diseases. And these are recorded um, with much detail in the histories of Eusebius and Josephus. And the book of Acts also chronicles many persecutions that took place by the Jews. Of course, that's the whole story of of Paul, Saul, being... um, 
uh, being witnessed to, first of all, by Jesus, why are you persecuting me? You're kicking against the goads. And then by Ananias, and, and then him coming to faith, this one who had been a murderer of, of those who had, uh, had, had confessed Christ, thinking that he was doing a good work for God. Um, that, those kinds of persecutions then continued even after Paul. And eventually, at the turn of Nero, um, a, a turning point in Nero's reign, he began to, to lead the Romans in all kinds of mass persecutions of the Christians in, in that generation as well. But um, there was, at, at, at Christ's incarnation, there was what was known as the Pax Romana. There was the peace of the Roman uh, rule over the, over the land that, that really enjoyed, went through much of the time um, of, of that first generation or of, of Jesus' lifetime. And, uh, and until the time of Nero, where the, um, it was, uh, there was a great outbreak of, of persecution and, and of wars. There was the Jewish war and the Roman civil wars that took place leading up to the violent year of the four emperors in AD 68 and 69. So if you know anything about the history of the Caesars, in, between, between AD 68 and 69, Nero um, commits suicide, kind of Forced. And then after that, there's this, there's this kind of reign of terror of one Caesar taking over and then that, that one claiming power and then him being put down and there's civil wars that are going on within the Roman Empire to determine who's going to be next. In the midst of that, Christians are being persecuted all over and, and, and in 67 AD, um, um, Jerusalem is surrounded with a siege that, that is taking place at the same time these other wars and civil wars and changes of power are taking place. Vespasian would start that siege against Jerusalem. He would go be called back, and Titus, his son, would come and finish the great uh, destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. During that turmoil, the Christians were betrayed, um, oftentimes by family members, and turned over to Nero, undergoing savage, beast-like persecution. Verse 10, look at verse 10 just for a moment. And the gospel, it says, must first be preached to all the nations. This is a, um, this is a, a, a passage or, or a verse that people will say there's an objection to be made here to that, that chapter 13 took place um, in that one generation because it says right here that um, the, the gospel has to be preached to all the nations first. Well, um, and Matthew says in his parallel passage, this gospel will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So there's, there's a slight difference in his wording, that it will, be, it will be preached in such a way that it becomes a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, objectors to the view that Jesus was speaking strictly about what would occur in that first generation will point particularly to this verse. But we should let the Bible describe what it means. Um, first of all, it's not, we're not talking here about the Great Commission where all the nations would be discipled. It, it, it's, it does say very clearly that the gospel will be preached to all the nations or that the gospel will be preached to all the world and all the world is a witness to all the nations. Well, according to Paul, it was, it was successfully done. According to Paul, it was successfully done. Luke also will record this. And in Colossians 1.6... Um, in Colossians 1.6, he, he writes, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world. 
and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. Just a few verses later, Colossians 1.23, if indeed you continue in faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Everybody's heard about this. Acts 2.5, Luke records um, at, the t- at the day of Pentecost that there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Well, technically, I don't think there was anybody there from Nepal, right? But see, the language of Scripture has to be interpreted according to how the language of Scripture is used. And these over and over again, we hear that the gospel was preached in all the world, Romans 1.8, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. So Jesus says, and the gospel must first be preached to all the nations, and what you see take place in the book of Acts is the gospel going out to all the world. As, defi- as, as, as they're thinking about it, as they're, as they're thinking about what must take place. And it's amazing if you think about it, you have 11 faithful apostles. All of them are going to be martyred for their faith. And, and, and a very small gathering that, that are left over that, that begin the work of, of taking the gospel to the nations. No internet, no airplanes, no TV, thank God. They, they, they are able to take the gospel all throughout the Roman Empire and even beyond in, into other places um, in just that first generation. Well, so Jesus said that would take place. Objectors to the view that Jesus was speaking the truth then want to, make, uh, want to make claims that the Bible is not claiming in terms of what it means that the gospel was preached to the world in that day, in that generation. So continuing on, beginning in verse 14, we're told, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. That's an important parenthetical comment. That means that the reader that Mark was writing to should be able to understand what the abomination of desolation is, okay? So it's, so it's, it's, it's not some far-fetched thing in the future that you would have no idea, but it's something that the reader would be able to understand. He's using a phrase that goes back to Daniel chapter 9, and you ought to be able to see this abomination of desolation before your very eyes in this generation, So Jesus told his disciples to watch for particular signs, and these were particular signs as a warning to flee Jerusalem before it was too late. So he goes on at 15 and and following, um, well, um, just the end of 14, that let those who are in the Judea flee to the mountains. If you're in Judea, when you see the abomination of desolation, you need to get out of town. It's not going to go well, Okay. This is similar to the warning the book of Hebrews gives to the Jewish Christians who were tempted. That book's probably written around 65, 66 AD. And, and there, are many, there are many Jewish Christians who have been sold a bill of goods by the Judaizers and others that you need to come back to Jerusalem. They're tempted because they're, they're undergoing all kinds of persecution to return to Jerusalem. And the, book of, and the writer of the book of Hebrews is basically saying, If you go there, there will be no more sacrifice for your sins because the walls are coming down. The temple's coming down. It doesn't work anymore. You don't want to go there. Going along, corresponding to Jesus' warning here in verse 14. 
Okay, so the, the abomination of desolation, was, it, it refers to a prophecy by Daniel in Ch Daniel chapter 9 of judgment upon those, it says, who had cut off the Messiah. Luke describes this event as Jerusalem surrounded by armies. So listen, listen to the Gospel of Luke, to the parallel there. He says this, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you know the desolation is near. Okay? And, and Luke says, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountain. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. Let those who are in the country, um, let not those who are in the country enter her. Get out, for these are the days of vengeance. These are the days of vengeance, that all the things which are written may be fulfilled. Okay, so Luke, corresponding with Mark, is making very clear of, wh of, of what is going to happen in that generation, in the generation that is listening to this. Now, so... The abomination of desolation. It, it could refer just to the, the surrounding of, of, the, um, of the Roman guard, uh, or the Roman soldiers, and then its des their desecration of the temple. Though it may also refer to the times during the Jewish wars when the temple was desecrated with abominations by fanatics who occupied it. According to Eusebius, there was, um, the, the, in, the middle of the, um, in, in the middle of the siege that that uh, was laid upon Jerusalem, there was some temporary withdrawal that took place by the Romans when any Christians that were left took advantage and hurriedly fled to Pella, about 60 miles from Jerusalem. So there was a point in time where any remaining Christians got out. And Eusebius records this, that, that in the fall of Jerusalem, in that final destruction, there were no Christians in Jerusalem at all. Now, Josephus left us an eyewitness record of much of the horrors of those years from A.D. 68 to 70. It was a time when he says, quote, the day was spent in shedding of blood and the night in fear, when the whole land was all over filled with fire and blood. Um, I, I was rereading some of, uh, of his writings, um, and he, he tells of a, of a battle that takes place in the ships uh, in jo on Joppa, on the Mediterranean Sea. And as these, um, at, at, as these ships are in battle with one another, um, men are crushed between boats. There's all kinds of slaughter. And the historians say that the sea was just filled with blood. It was, it was, just, filled, it was just blood red um, with all those who had died. So um, these, these kinds of descriptions um, often that we see of this of the destruction of and of the end times are things that we that were seen by men as as we came to the time of the end of Jerusalem. And so it was a time when lakes and seas turned red, when the Roman soldiers captured people attempting to escape and then crucified them. Um, like any um, army that would would lay siege to a city, what they would do is they would cut down all of the trees, everything, all all of the. Um, vineyards and all the fields, everything would be leveled and salted as they're going to destroy the, the land. And then the city, um, they, they would keep everybody in the city until they starved so that they were so weakened before they'd make their final um, attack upon them. So the land around Jerusalem has been completely waylaid. It's all flat. And now, but if you, um, but Josephus records that if you looked at, if you looked at Jerusalem, it looked like there was a forest of trees still around. Well, it wasn't a forest of trees. It was a forest of crosses. It was a forest of crosses for the hundreds that were being crucified daily as they tried to escape um, from Jerusalem or as they were captured um, during, that, during this time. Over a million Jews were slaughtered, and tens of thousands were captured and carried away into slavery. 
Now, look with me at verse 19 for a minute. For it says, for in those days, there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. In those days, there will be tribulation. There it is, this great tribulation. A tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. Now, some might argue that verse 19 um, again, disqualifies the great tribulation of this first century, of this first generation, to be the one that is the worst of all, um, because it wasn't the bloodiest loss to the Jews in all of history. But what makes a tribulation so great, what makes a tribulation so great is not so much the body count, but the covenantal significance surrounding the event. What was, what was taking place? Yes, there, there were many, many that were killed. But it wasn't the greatest number of Jews that have ever been killed. Um, it wasn't the greatest number of people. But it was a complete destruction of an old covenant order. It was a, it was a desecration and an end of the temple and the place where God could be with, where people could be with their God. It was, the, it was the end and judgment upon um, the abominations in, in the false worship, uh, in the um, idolatrous worship that was actually going on in the temple in, in the day and had been going on um, for, for many years, many centuries, in fact. So this was God's vengeance. These were the days of vengeance of God upon an, un, um, uh, an unbelieving people, an idolatrous and rebellious people. Um, leading up to and including the death of his son, the crucifixion of his son. So it's the covenantal significance that makes it the great. This marked the end of the Levitical priesthood, the end of the ceremonial sacrifice, sacrifices that could only be done at this temple and only by certified Jews. After that temple is destroyed, if, you're an ortho, if you were a, 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 a faithful Jew trying to follow the Old Testament practices there was nowhere to go to take your offerings anymore. You, you see, offerings were never, no sacrifices were made in synagogues. You, you only made sacrifices at the temple, and there's no temple. You only made sacrifices through a priest, and there's no priesthood. You only made, you only made sacrifices at Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is a rubble, okay? This was the end. This was the great tribulation upon the Jewish nation. This was the end of the old covenant order and the old creation, the old creation, which is part of the reason why the next verses talk with this kind of creation language. Look at verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Now, these verses can baffle those who do not, first of all, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Let the Old Testament use of language, figures, symbols speak to us and teach us how to, to see um, what God is saying in the New Testament. Apocalyptic language is full of, full of symbols. It speaks to us in symbol language. And, and what happens is that people think this must refer to the end of the universe and the world. We've got stars falling out of the heavens. We have the, we have the moon going blood red. We have the sun going dark. What is going on here, right? Um, this must be the end of the created world, the created universe. But this is common prophetic language 
used to describe judgments of God upon nations and cities. It's all through the Old Testament. And, and before, before it's used in that way, you have to remember, what did God already tell us to see when we see the sun, moon, and stars? When he sets the sun, moon, and stars in their places, he says they would be the rulers of the night and the day. We're to see them as rulers. And then, then that's to teach us something about when rulers fall. What does it look like? It looks like your lights are going out. Um, Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10 says, For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. What's Isaiah talking about in Isaiah 13? Well, he's talking about the fall of Babylon, the future fall of Babylon. Isaiah 34, 4, um, all the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as a leaf falls from the vine and as the fruit fall, falling from the tree. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the destruction of Edom, a judgment upon um, Edom and Idumea. In Ezekiel chapter 32, verse 7, when I put out your light, I will cover the heavens and make its stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give her light. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the judgment upon Egypt. So in all these, all these uses, what, what, God, what God does, what he says, what the prophets say in this apocalyptic language is your powers are going down. Your rule is going to end. Your lights are going out. It's over. It's over for the kings. It's over for the powerful cities. You're under God's judgment. <coughs> and... And then the judgment on those cities takes place. And when the judgment on those cities takes place, it's not the end of the world. It's not the end of the created order. Of course, it looks like it to the kings that are, are judged, to the cities that are judged. It is as though it's the, end, it's the end of their time. And so this is the way Scripture speaks in this way. When Jesus is speaking this way, he's speaking in exactly the same way. It happens again in Amos chapter 8, where there's um, um, the, the um, judgment that is being foretold that will take place upon the northern kingdom, upon Israel. And then in Joel chapter 2, about the judgment that is going to take place upon Jerusalem. The, both sec sections use the same kind of language. There's no reason to, to see this in any, any other way. Now, um, in, in a similar way, we also get confused sometimes uh, in terms of direction by the phrase, they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, verse 26. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Um, Matthew, in, his, uh, in Matthew 24, the parallel passage, it says, then the sign of the Son of Man in heaven will appear. The sign of the Son of Man in heaven will appear. It really shouldn't be translated that the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, but rather that the sign of the Son of Man in heaven will appear. What will be the sign that the Son of Man is in heaven? What will be the sign that the Son of Man has been enthroned and now rules over all of heaven and earth? Well, what, what that sign will be will, will be the um, fulfillment of the prophecies that he has given with regard to what will take place in this genera generation. Jesus is alluding to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where the phrase the Son of Man is used, where he is coming in the clouds. The Son of Man is used, he's coming in the clouds. I want you to listen, and I want you to notice where the Son of Man is coming. Where is he coming? If you'd like, you can turn to Daniel 7 and look at yourself. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, 
that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Where did Jesus come? The sign of the Son of Man coming is the sign of the Son of Man coming to heaven, to the Ancient of Days, to be enthroned at the right hand of God, and to rule over the kingdoms of the world. And so the Son of Man uh, ascends to the Ancient of Days to receive all the dominion that had belonged to the Gentile empires of the ancient world. How will this be since it will be occurring in heaven? Well, it is seen or perceived when Jerusalem is destroyed as Jesus predicts. So nobody saw Jesus seated. So how do I see the sign of the Son of Man now ruling over all the nations of the world? When I see Jerusalem destroyed, I see the sign of the Son of Man in heaven because that's, because that's what he promised would happen when he was seated at the throne of God, that his name would be vindicated, that the days of vengeance would come upon that, upon that unbelieving generation. Jesus then concludes that he will send out his angel messengers, which I believe um, the, the word angel sometimes means cherubim or seraphim, those kinds of angels. Sometimes it means messenger. The word angelos means a messenger. John the Baptist was an angel, it says. Um, we, we always, we, we translate it messenger, but the word is angelos, exact same word. So uh, an angel, the angels that are gathering, the, that are gathering through <clears throat> all of the earth to collect the elect are the preachers of the gospel who are going through and, and gathering together um, the, um, the work of, of evangelizing the church and building the new temple, the new church. And so Jesus says, look, learn from the fig tree. He says in verse 28, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also know you see these things happening. Know that it is near at the door. Assuredly, and this is when he says, assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. This generation would have been watching then because Jesus said, watch and look and see what's going to happen. And then he says, verse 31, um, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Let's consider that as well in just a moment here. So when the trees are budding, you know that a particular time is near, right? It's springtime. Remember the question that they asked in verse 4. The question they asked was, tell us when, all, when these things will be. What things? The, 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 um, the stone not being left upon another and the great temple and buildings all be thrown down. Jesus when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? So remember that. Remember the context in which Jesus answers, the context, of, especially as he mentions uh, in Luke 21, 20 and 22, that you will see the armies, uh, the armies surrounding Jerusalem. You'll see that. Remember the historical accounts of the generation which ended in 70 AD, and hear the words of Jesus. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Considering all of this, it really does not seem that difficult to interpret this verse quite naturally. Now, one might be charged, if you hold to this view, that you're not taking the literal view, um, as though that was the higher order, that you should always interpret everything literally. But, but that's just not the case as, as we read through Scripture. Time and again, it's very clear that we are to 
to um, interpret parables with parabolic meaning. We are to interpret um, narratives according to the narrative. We were to interpret didactic passages, teaching passages accordingly. We are to, to, uh, to use sim symbols and metaphors are all throughout the scriptures. So we are to, we are to interpret them, not literally, but naturally, as they are given to us, as the scriptures teach us to look at them. We are, to, we are taking the scriptures as presented then, naturally, according to their use. And so when it says heaven and earth will pass away, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. What does he mean, heavens and earth will pass away? Well, I think taking the scripture as a whole, including the Old Testament prophecies of a new heavens and a new earth, there is in one sense that we are in and we are the new heavens and the new earth. There, there is a final consummation. There is a final judgment coming and a final consummation of, of the earth. But we are, every, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, all things are made new. There's a, there's a new sheriff in town. There's a new order. There's a new way of approaching God. There's a new, there's a new fresh way of being in his presence. All things are new. So a, a new heavens and a new earth were established in this new reign as well. The old ways will pass away, but the words of Christ will never pass away. His prophecy was exact. He was the prophet who got it right. Absolutely, all the way to every last word, every jot and tittle. So, he now says uh, to, to these disciples, but that of that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. <clears throat> Jesus is the man going away to a far country in this parable. Um, this occurred on Ascension Day. That's when he went away to the far country. This occurred on Ascension Day, his coronation as king. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Probably the most quoted verse in the New Testament. Psalm 110, 1. So his coronation as king, as king of kings over all the nations. Now there will be a final judgment on this earth Jesus will physically return, and then will, there will be a resurrection of every man, woman, and child from the graves. But this passage, these passages, Mark 13, Matthew 24, Luke 21, are not about that. They are about the end of Jerusalem, the end of the temple, the end of the Old Testament order and ministration, and judgment upon Israel for rejecting and crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ. These were the coming days of judgment because of the ascension and reign of Jesus Christ in the heavens, but over the earth. So these events occurred because Israel did not take heed of his warnings, did not watch their hearts, and did not pray exclusively to the God of Abraham with the faith of Abraham. Jesus said, if you had the faith of Abraham, you would know who I am. They claimed to be sons of Abraham, but they were not because, and he says, you're the sons of your father, the devil. Years later, Paul would warn the Gentile Christians in Rome not to be haughty, for if God could cut out the natural branches, he certainly could cut out those who had been grafted in. And I want to end by, I'm going to turn to that passage there in Romans chapter 11 as we end. Um, this, is, this is news of the, of the gospel really continuing its work after the ascension of Jesus Christ and beyond the destruction of the temple and the... And the um, and the judgment that fell upon Israel, cutting them out as no longer the covenant people of God exclusively. Now, the covenant people of God are those who are in Christ Jesus, baptized into Christ Jesus, Jew and Gentile alike. Okay? 
So what about Israel? What about the, 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 these people? Um, Paul, writing in Romans chapter 11, I'm just going to jump into the middle of it and just to read a few verses here. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, that'd be the Jewish um, branches, and you being a wild olive tree, because you weren't a part of this you weren't part of this gig at all, you Gentiles. You, you, a wild olive tree, you were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You'll say then, branches were broken off that I might be graft, grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. And by the way, you see this happen in the book of Acts over and over again. Paul will take the gospel into city after city after city. Where does he always go first? He always goes to the synagogues. He always goes and preaches the gospel to the Jews. Over and over again, they end up rejecting him, kicking him out. And then he goes and establishes a church with the few Jews that might have believed and then the Gentiles. Paul was doing exactly what he's writing about here, exactly what, uh, what um, he kind of summarizes his ministry here in this way. He says, well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. And he says, for if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, if, if you were grafted in in an unnatural way into this root, into this branch, into this covenant, because of their unbelief, the, the, their unbelief brought about this great blessing, and here we are, you are the great blessing of the unbelief of the Jews. But he says, he goes on, he says, if, if that happened, if a great blessing like that happened, then he says, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? How much more what? How much more of a blessing to the world? From the days at least of the Puritans and on, there was a regular prayer in the, in the, in the, in the worship of the church for the conversion of the Jews. For, the, for God to bring about a great conversion of, of the Jews in our generation, in the generation in which we lived. Why? Because of this verse. Because when the, when the Jews are converted, there would be now a, 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 a huge outpouring of the, of the work of God and his spirit and a bringing forth of the salvation of many, many, many more Gentiles. This, this is what seems to indicate um, with our hope. And so we, we, should, we should be a people with great hope and great prayers, also taking heed, watching, and praying. <clears throat> Every generation must take heed and watch and pray to the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, King Jesus. If Jesus conquered Jerusalem, it follows that he is conquered and is Lord over every city, every nation, every people group. If his word is true, his conquering of Jerusalem is the conquering of every city. In effect, it is done. Objectively, it's already accomplished, including Woodenville. Who is king of Woodenville? Jesus is Lord. Christ is Lord. Who is Lord of Olympia? Christ is Lord of Olympia. Who's, who is Lord of Washington, D.C.? Jesus Christ is king of Washington, D.C. 
who is king of the world, who has been given all authority over heaven and earth. Not some ethereal authority over, over hearts and minds, and, but, but authority over the created world, over the creation that he has. Who has been given that authority? Well, it is King Jesus, and we are all on notice. He has declared from his executive orders what he would accomplish to begin with. He's made very clear what he's going to do from now until his return. He is going to see the knowledge of the Lord cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. He is going to create a temple far more glorious than anything any human hands could ever make. This will be a temple made with his hands. And they will be made with living stones. This is the temple of the church that will grow up into godliness. He is going to perfect a bride that will be perfect without blemish that will be presented on the day of Jesus' return to him. A bride that will encompass the world, all nations, all tongues, because of the ascension and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a new sheriff in town. And let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are to be worshipped and adored with fear and trembling, for you are mighty at pulling down every stronghold. Jesus reigns at your right hand. Make us a people so filled with gratitude for the just wrath passed by us because of your work on the cross. Make us a people so filled with hope because he rules now over heaven and earth, bringing forth that salvation over all the world. Make us those angels who go out and gather the elect. Make us a people so filled with zeal to take heed of your word. Watch our hearts and pray unceasingly for your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. For we ask it and claim it in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Let's stand and sing number 531.